0: I wonder if you can remember a time when you were looking forward to something and waited for it, expecting to enjoy it, only to be let down when it came around. Maybe you were looking forward to a break in your busy schedule, going on a trip you had planned, or attending an event you were excited about, but things didn't turn out as you had hoped. Maybe when that break finally came, you got sick. Or had to deal with unexpected problems. Maybe when that trip you had planned came around, it didn't go as you had hoped. Or maybe that event that you were looking forward to just kind of turned out to be lame. Whatever the case, can you think of a time when you were looking forward to something, waiting expectantly, only to be disappointed when it came around? I think most of us can relate to this. Most of us can think of a time when something along these lines uh, have happened. One of the things we've already seen in our sermon series going through Luke's gospel is that the Christian life is a life of waiting, and waiting expectantly. And we are going to see that again in our passage this morning. We are working our way through the gospel of Luke, and our sermon passage this morning is Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open up to Luke chapter 2. The good news for us is that while we are called to wait, and to wait expectantly, as followers of Jesus, we will not be let down as we wait for the Lord to deliver on his promises. Last week we read about the birth of Jesus, and today we'll read about what took place a few weeks after his birth. And what we're going to see is that a few weeks after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had a very eventful and revealing trip to the temple in Jerusalem. So I'll read Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38, and I encourage you to follow along. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male The first thing I want to do is give an overview of what we see in our passage before we consider the main point of the text. Last week, we read about the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. And in verse 21, we read, And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Last week's passage ended with Joseph and Mary following the law of Moses, Regarding Jesus' circumcision. And our passage today begins with the couple following other prescriptions in the Mosaic law. When we see this reference to the law of Moses, it's a reference to the law that God gave to his people Israel at Mount Sinai through his servant Moses. And God gave his people his law so that they would know how to live in right relationship with him and enjoy his presence among them. God chose his people Israel out of all the nations of the earth to be his special people, his treasured possession. And he gave them his law so they would know how to live as his people, live as his treasured possession. His law was good and it was good for them. In verses 22 through 24, we see that the purification and presentation required by the law were carried out. Now, the purity laws of the Old Testament, which we read about in Leviticus, are foreign to us, and sometimes they're difficult to understand. But to summarize briefly, the Lord gave the Israelites these laws, ceremonies, and rituals to teach them about his holy character and what is necessary for his people to enjoy living in his holy presence. God is holy. He is without any sin, any stain of sin. And his presence is the realm of life. It is the realm of light. And so he wanted the Israelites to understand that in his presence, there could be no sin, there could be no death, there could be nothing associated with death. And so they had these ceremonies and these rituals and these laws and these purity laws and cleanness laws so they could understand this, so they could understand that anything related to death was meant to be separate from the presence of God, which is the realm of life. He wanted them to understand these distinctions. He wanted them to understand the problem of sin. He wanted them to understand his holiness. He wanted them to understand the connection between sin and death and his holy presence in life. And so he gave them these laws to that end. And so in Leviticus 12, we read that when a woman gave birth to a son, she was unclean for seven days and then had to wait 33 more days for her purification to be completed. But her purification would not be completed until she offered a lamb for a burnt offering and a turtle dove or a pigeon for a sin offering. However, a provision was made for someone who could not afford a lamb. In Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8, we read, And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Well, apparently, Mary and Joseph could not afford a lamb. And so they used this provision in the law, offering instead two turtle doves or two pigeons. We also read that they presented Jesus to the Lord in fulfillment of Exodus 13, 1 and 2, which says, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And so in obedience to what was commanded, they brought Jesus to to consecrate them as their firstborn son. By recording the circumcision, purification, and presentation, Luke shows us that Jesus was born to parents who sought to obey the law. He was born to parents who walked in the fear of the Lord, desired to obey the Lord and to honor him and to live their lives according to his law. This was a good thing. This was a good and commendable thing we see with Joseph and Mary. It's not that they were without sin. Of course, they were sinners in need of God's saving grace. Yet they by all accounts, seem to love the Lord and honor the Lord and seek to walk in obedience to the Lord. And their faithfulness in these things also reminds us that Jesus was born under the Mosaic law. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul wrote, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus was born under the Mosaic law. His parents sought to walk in obedience to the law, and Jesus, in his life, perfectly fulfilled the law so that he could redeem those under the law. You see, those who break the law and are disobedient to the law are under a curse. So Jesus, who was born under the law, perfectly obeyed the law, and yet bore the curse of the law, on the cross to redeem those under the law. When Joseph and Mary arrived at the temple, they encountered a couple of older godly saints who were devoted to the Lord and were very excited to meet Jesus. They met a man named Simeon, whom we don't know much about, but we do know that he was a righteous man waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. We also learned that the Spirit revealed to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And when he saw Jesus, he realized this was the fulfillment of what the Lord had promised him. In the power of the Spirit, he blessed the Lord with a prophetic word, rejoicing in the Lord's salvation. And he followed that up with a blessing for Joseph and Mary, But also spoke an ominous word about the future. Finally, we're introduced to Anna, a godly widow and prophetess. But we're only given a brief summary of her life and ministry. We read that she was only married for seven years before her husband passed away, and she lived the remainder of her life as a widow. In the text there, it says that she was 84, but there's a little bit of ambiguity in the Greek there. Some of your Bibles might have a little footnote. It might be the case that she lived as a widow for 84 years. So it's either she was 84 or she lived as a widow for 84, which meant she was over 100 years old. Either way, she was an older saint who was devoted to the Lord, living a life of ordinary faithfulness. Luke introduces us to Simeon and Anna, two faithful servants who served the Lord day in and day out for many years while waiting expectantly for the Lord to deliver on his promises and whom the Lord saw fit to include in his gospel story. So in our passage, Luke records an eventful trip to Jerusalem just weeks after Jesus was born, where Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to the temple fulfilled the prescriptions of the law, and encountered two godly saints who testified to the Lord's salvation and redemption. So what is the main point of our passage? Well, I think the main point of the passage is that the Lord's Christ saves and divides. The Lord's Christ saves and divides. We'll consider that in two parts. First, the Lord's Christ saves. Simeon was promised that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Of course, that begs the question, what does the Lord's Christ mean, and who is the Lord's Christ? Well, the Lord is Yahweh. Yahweh is the one true living God who has revealed himself to his people, and we read about his revelation. Uh, in the Old Testament Scriptures, how he revealed himself, how he made his name known to them. And we also read in the Old Testament Scriptures that he promised that he would send a Messiah, that he would send a a king, an anointed and chosen king, who would come as a servant to save his people. We see this throughout uh, all these different references scattered throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. And the words Messiah and Christ are synonyms, which literally mean anointed one, and came to refer to God's chosen and anointed king who would come to save his people. When Jesus is referred to as the Messiah or Christ, it points to his status as God's appointed savior king. Simeon was promised that he would see the Lord's Christ, Yahweh's anointed, chosen savior king before he died. And when he saw Mary and Joseph bring Jesus into the temple, he knew the Lord had fulfilled his promise to him. He knew and testified that Jesus is the Lord's Christ, Yahweh's chosen and anointed king And one of the things he said when he took Jesus in his arms was, my eyes have seen your salvation. How could he say that? How could he take up this baby in his arms and say, my eyes have seen your salvation? Isn't salvation an act? Don't we think of salvation as an act? Think of someone drowning. Someone drowning and someone jumps in to rescue them. Someone jumps in and pulls them out of the water, that's an act of salvation. That person is saved from drowning or consider someone trapped in a burning house and a, and a firefighter goes in and rescues them and pulls them out. That is an act of salvation. And indeed, that is true. Salvation is an act. But all Simeon was doing was looking at a baby. Well, what we see in Luke's gospel is that salvation is one of his favorite words and most significant themes. Salvation is one way of describing Jesus' entire mission as he came to seek and save the lost. And salvation is indeed a plan, an act of God to deliver his people from sin, death, and Satan. But we don't only think about his salvation in terms of this, this plan and an act. We also see that Salvation is a person. It's not merely a what. It is a who. So when Simeon looked at Jesus, he could say, My eyes have seen your salvation. Friends, salvation is found in Jesus. And it is only found in Jesus. In Acts chapter four, verse 12, Peter declared, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation is found in Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ How else do we see the Lord's salvation described in our passage? Well, in verse 25, we read that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. In verse 38, Anna was speaking to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. In verse 32, Simeon described the Lord's salvation as a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. What do these phrases teach us about the Lord's salvation? We see the Lord's salvation comes through his chosen people, Israel. The Lord graciously chose Israel out of all the nations of the earth to be his treasured possession. And to the ones through whom he would bring salvation. Yet when we read the Old Testament story, when we read the scriptures, we see that they rebelled against the Lord. Despite the fact that the Lord loved them despite the fact the Lord was gracious to them and merciful to them, they rebelled against him. They sinned against him. They rejected him time and time and time again. God sent prophets to warn them, to tell them to stop sinning, to call them to return to being faithful to the covenant relationship that he had established with them. And yet they persisted in their sin and rebellion, and the Lord disciplined them. The Lord disciplined them for their continual sin and rejection of him. Yet, when he disciplined them, he did not go back on his word. He did not go back on his plan. And even when he disciplined them, he offered words of comfort and hope. And we see this in numerous places. For example, in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, we read... Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God promised comfort to his people, and Jerusalem was the epicenter of God's people and their special place of worship. These references to Jerusalem, it's like the heart, the center. Of where God's people dwelled. And at the center was God's temple, his special place of dwelling, their special place of worship, a physical reminder that God had chosen them and had made his dwelling in their midst. The redemption of Jerusalem, the consolation of Israel, and the glory of Israel remind us of how God promised to save his people and how he promised to bring salvation through his people. We see that his salvation was never exclusively for the Israelites, as the Lord always had the nations in mind. When the Lord called Abraham, the great patriarch of the Israelite people, he told him, "I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." Somehow, some way, through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And moreover, the Lord foretold through his prophet Isaiah that the Messiah, described as the Lord's servant, would be a light to the nations. In Isaiah 49, 6, we read, is it, or it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the uh, preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. God promised to bring salvation to his people and through his people to the ends of the earth. Simeon testified that Jesus, born to Jewish parents under the law of Moses, a descendant of Abraham and David, is the Lord's Christ who came into the world as the savior of the world. He came to save people from all over the earth. And where did Simeon make this pronouncement? At the temple, in Jerusalem, the epicenter of God's people and their special place of worship. What we see is that the temple has a special place in Luke's gospel. Where did his gospel story begin? After he gave his prologue in the first four verses, his gospel story begins at the temple with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah going to offer incense at the temple. And where does Luke's gospel end? I'll give you one guess. In Luke chapter 24, verses 52 and 53, which are the last two verses of his gospel, we read... And they worshiped, and this is after Jesus ascended into heaven. We read this about his disciples. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. After Jesus died and rose from the grave, he appeared to hundreds of people over the course of 40 days. And he gave his disciples a mission we refer to this as the Great Commission. You should read about the end of Matthew's gospel. We see this again in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Before his ascension, Jesus spoke to his disciples, and he said this to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We see time and again that Jerusalem seems to be this epicenter, but that's not where it ends. The gospel goes out from there to the surrounding regions and nations to the ends of the earth. Jesus gave them this mission and sent them that the gospel might spread and then spread some more and then spread some more so that people from every nation would put their faith in Christ, believing in God's chosen Savior King. The redemption of Jerusalem and the consolation of Israel is where salvation begins, but it is not where it ends. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Brothers and sisters, we who gather here this morning are a testament to this. Halfway around the world, thousands of years later, what are we doing here? We are gathering in the name of Jesus, the Lord's Christ, our Savior King. The gospel has spread. People from all nations are trusting in Christ for their salvation. Praise the Lord. What we see that was written here thousands of years ago has become a reality. And that work is continuing as there is still work to be done. We are the beneficiaries of God's plan, of his actions, of his savior, king, Jesus But while the salvation in Jesus is for all nations and will be proclaimed throughout all the world, not everyone will receive it. In our passage, we also see that the Lord's Christ divides. So far in Luke's gospel, we have seen a lot of rejoicing, praising God and giving thanks among God's people to whom he revealed that the time of fulfillment had come. We've seen this in responses of Elizabeth, Zechariah, their family and friends, as well as Mary. We see it again in our passage with Simeon and Anna. We see this theme of praising God, blessing God, giving thanks to God, rejoicing in his faithfulness and the fulfillment of his promises. But for the first time in verses 34 and 35, we have a darker note with regard to what is taking place with the coming of the Lord's Christ. Simeon told Mary... Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary back in chapter one, he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. What a greeting! You are favored by the Lord. And the Lord is with you. Wow. Can you imagine how she felt when she heard that message? Who am I? The Lord is with me? I'm favored by the Lord? Yes, indeed. She was. When she visited Elizabeth, Elizabeth cried out, Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. Wow. What a greeting. What a greeting to say, blessed are you, Mary, among women. You are blessed. And in Mary's song of praise, called the uh, Magnificat, she exclaimed, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Indeed, she has been called blessed. The Lord did great things for her. The Lord favored Mary. She was blessed among women, and the Lord did great things for her. But for the first time, she was told that her blessing would come with pain. She had received good news, extraordinary news. What an incredible role that she played in God's plan of redemption. The Lord was using her to give birth to the Savior King of the whole world. Wow, this was extraordinary news. But here, in the words of Simeon, the reality of the cross began to cast a shadow. Mary, though favored and blessed, would not be spared suffering. a sword would pierce her soul. She would experience a pain that at the time she couldn't imagine. Brothers and sisters, this is a reminder to us that even those who are favored by God, even those who are blessed by God, experience suffering, pain, sorrow, heartache. This does not mean that God does not love you. This does not mean that God does not care. This does not mean that he is not with you. No, even those favored, blessed, chosen by God, experience pain and suffering in this life. The source of Mary's suffering would be the opposition and hostility to Jesus. Jesus was appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Well, what did that mean? What did it mean that he was appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel? Well, there are two ways that we can understand the fall and rising of many. It's possible that the fall and rising of many refers to one group of people who will fall and then rise, or it's referring to two different people, or two different groups of people, one group who will fall and one group who will rise. If he's referring to one group of people who fall and then rise, it might be an allusion to Micah. In Micah chapter seven, verse eight, we read, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Perhaps the reference here is to the fact that suffering precedes glory. This was true of Christ. He suffered before glory. And that's often true of the disciples of Jesus, those who follow him. We experience suffering, trials, hardships in this life on our way to glory. In Romans 8.18, Paul said, I don't think that the suffering of this present time compares to the glory to be revealed to us. So perhaps the fall refers to those who suffer in this life, but who rise again and experience glory in all eternity. But if he was referring to two groups of people, one group who fall, another who rise, and it might be an allusion to Isaiah 8, where those who oppose the Lord stumble and fall. In Isaiah 8:14 and 15 we read, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Indeed, For many, Christ is a rock upon whom they stumble and fall and are broken. Either way, we know that Jesus divides, as he is also described, as a sign that is opposed. In his ministry, many opposed Jesus, even though he was sent from heaven. Indeed, Jesus divided the nation of Israel. Throughout Luke's gospel, we will see many people receive, welcome, and believe in Jesus. But oftentimes, it's the case that it's people whom culturally would not be expected to respond well to God and the ones sent from God. Oftentimes, the ones who respond to Jesus in Luke's gospel are the the marginalized, the, the outcasts, the notorious sinners. We also see that there were many who opposed Jesus during his ministry. And oftentimes the ones who opposed Jesus, opposed Jesus during his earthly ministry was the Jewish religious establishment, the religious leaders, perhaps the ones whom culturally people would expect to respond well to God and the one sent from God. Yet they opposed him and there was hostility. They hated him and eventually had him put to death. But it was not only the people of Israel who were divided over Jesus. Just as people were divided on Jesus during his earthly ministry, people were divided over Jesus after his death, resurrection, and ascension. We see this in the book of Acts. As the gospel began to spread to different cities and regions and nations, it was oftentimes the gospel was met with acceptance and rejoicing. There were those who believed, but then there were those who resisted and opposed. This was true of Jewish uh, communities as well as non-Jewish communities or Gentile communities. This was true. There was oftentimes this clear divide between those who received Jesus and those who opposed Jesus, those who embraced uh, the preachers of the gospel and those who opposed the preachers of the gospel. And the faithful preaching of the gospel continues to divide. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 24, uh, 24 Paul wrote, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For many, the preaching of the gospel is a stumbling block and an offense. But for those who receive it, it is the power of God for salvation. Many people today may seem to be neutral or indifferent when it comes to Jesus. I'm not sure if you've encountered that. There tends to be an attitude and a disposition of, hey, whatever works for you is fine. What works for you is great. What works for for me is great. If Jesus works for you and helps you live a better life, that's wonderful. I got no problem with that. There tends to be some examples of hostility, some examples of people who receive and believe, and some examples of people who just seem to be neutral or indifferent. But I think that is largely because people don't understand the claims that Jesus made about himself or more poignantly, the claims he makes on their lives. When you understand the claims that Jesus made, that he claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, he identified himself with the one true living God The only way for you to receive the forgiveness of your sins is through Him. When you understand the claims He made about Himself and the claims He makes on your life, you must submit to Him. You must humble yourself, repent of your sin, and believe in Him. That's your only hope for salvation. You can't save yourself. You must believe in Christ. When you understand the claims that Christ made about Himself and you understand the claims that He makes on your life, you can't be neutral. You must either receive and believe or oppose him. Friend, if you're not a Christian, our hope and our prayer for you is that you will respond to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, by repenting of your sin and believing in Christ because you too are in need of salvation. See, God is our creator. He is the one who made us. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And he created man, male and female, in his image to know him, to enjoy him, to obey him, and to glorify him. He created us for this wonderful purpose. And yet, every one of us has rejected God's purpose for our lives and his rule over our lives. We've all sinned. We've all disobeyed God. We've all fallen short of his commands. And therefore, we are all deserving of punishment. We are all deserving of God's judgment. We all deserve hell. Yet, God, in his mercy and his kindness, sent Jesus Christ, his Savior King, into the world as the Savior of the world that we might receive the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life rather than the hell we deserve. Jesus lived a life without sin, perfectly obeying God's law, which we've all failed to do. And he went to the cross to take the punishment for the sins of his people. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ for us. Jesus died and was buried, but on the third day he rose again and he appeared to hundreds of people proving that he is alive. And by God's grace, those witnesses testified to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and passed on their testimony. And that testimony has been preserved and passed on from generation to generation so that we too may know this good news, that we too may know that Jesus is alive, that God has vindicated him that he is the savior king, that we can trust in him and that in him we have salvation. In him we have the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life. But we must respond. How does Christ command us to respond to this good news? We must repent and believe. So friend, our our hope for you if you're not a Christian is that you will repent of your sin, believe in Christ and be saved. This is the good news. In our passage, Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to the temple, fulfilled the prescriptions of the law, and encountered two godly saints who testified to the Lord's salvation, teaching us that the Lord's Christ saves and divides. In addition to teaching us important things about Jesus, about who Jesus is, our passage also points to a few things that help us understand what it means to follow Jesus. What do we learn about following Jesus? First, following Jesus is costly. As we've seen, Mary was incredibly blessed and favored by God, yet the blessing came with a cost. The references to the sword piercing her soul and the opposition Jesus would face remind us that we should not expect that following Jesus will be easy in this life. If Jesus faced opposition, then we can expect that his followers will face opposition. Jesus said so. In John chapter 15, verses 18 to 19, he told his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Those who follow Jesus will experience the hatred of the world. The nature and severity of opposition and hatred directed toward followers of Jesus will vary from time to time and from place to place. Some will experience it more acutely than others. And that is true right now in our world today. There are followers of Jesus who are experiencing this hostility and hatred toward Jesus more acutely than we are. There are some who are facing um, imprisonment, the loss of their homes or their jobs, even death. That is true around the world today. Some of us experience this in different ways in relationships with families or or, or friends or or even coworkers. But one reason it's important for us to understand this is that as Christians, we face immense pressure and temptation to make Christianity more palatable in the eyes of the world. We wanna make it more palatable. We wanna soften some of the harder edges we want Christianity and Christians to be viewed as acceptable. We want to be liked. We don't enjoy being hated. And this, can, this may cause us to shrink back, keep our heads down, try to fit in, and avoid ruffling feathers. But brothers and sisters, we are called to be bold for Jesus, to take risks for the kingdom, and to take up our crosses and follow him. We want to be loving and kind to all. But at the same time, we must be bold, must be kind and loving and bold, taking risks for the kingdom, speaking the truth about Jesus, about who he is, who he claimed to be, and the claims he makes on our lives. We want to be bold. We want to take risks because we want the Lord to use us. And as the Lord uses us, we can expect that there will be those who oppose and those who hate. But we find comfort in Jesus when that happens. While following Jesus is costly, we also see that following Jesus is worth it. When Mary and Joseph arrived at the temple with Jesus, it was a climactic moment in Simeon's life. And when he saw Jesus, he said, Lord, now now you are letting your servant depart in peace. I've seen Jesus. Now I can die. Simeon didn't have this whole list of things that he wanted to get done before he died. All he wanted was to see Jesus. Jesus. Seeing Jesus was enough. Simeon understood something that we would do well to understand and believe. There is nothing better than seeing and beholding Jesus. Paul understood this well. In Philippians 3.8, he wrote, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my God. Lord. All the good things in his life, everything that he had accomplished, he said, it's a loss, it's, it's, it's rubbish, it's garbage, because now I know Jesus. And knowing Jesus is immeasurably better. Is there anything more important to you than knowing Jesus? Is there anything sweeter to you than knowing Jesus? Following Jesus is costly but worth it, and therefore we wait expectantly. We are not waiting for the first coming of the Christ as Simeon and Anna were. He came, but he also promised that he will come again. We are waiting for the second coming of Christ, When Jesus arrived, he brought with him the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God broke into the world, and we begin to experience that now. We begin to taste that now. But we wait. We are waiting for the consummation of his kingdom. We are waiting for Christ to return and to, to bring us home, the new heavens and the new earth. In Philippians 3, 20 and 21, we read, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We are waiting. And we are awaiting expectantly. And we are waiting for a good thing. And what we wait for will not disappoint us. It will not let us down. He is faithful. He is good. His promises are good. And so we wait expectantly for the return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Your word is good. We thank you for all that you reveal to us in your word. We thank you and praise you for sending Jesus, the Christ, into the world as the Savior of the world. We thank you that the gospel has spread from nation to nation, throughout generation to generation. We thank you and praise you that we hear our living testimony to the truth that Jesus is the Savior of the world. We pray that we would understand that following Jesus is costly but worth it. We pray that you would help us to wait, eager for the return of Christ, knowing that what you promised us is good, and you will bring it about. Strengthen our faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.